Hello there, listeners. This is Sean from Teaching Python. Kelly and I recently spent some time reflecting on what we've learned since we started our podcast. We've learned that there's an amazing community of teachers and Pythonistas out there, and we're thrilled to be a part of it. One thing we've also realized, for being honest with ourselves, is that we're not that great at editing podcast audio or hosting and running website servers. So what we'd really like to do is get some help with that, and that costs money. As it turns out, there's this really cool website called Patreon that lets you support us with a few dollars each month. We're a little bit more comfortable with that as teachers than going out and looking for sponsors, um, to corporate sponsors to help us out. We're setting a goal of $100 a month to start. That'll cover basic things like website hosting and podcast audio editing. If we hit that goal, we're going to launch, we're also going to launch a monthly web conference meeting for patrons where you can meet with us and other teachers to ask questions, brainstorm teaching ideas, and make plans. Thanks for all of your support. We really appreciate it. It's made the biggest difference for us as we ventured into this new world of podcasting. So without any further ado, on to the show. Hello and welcome to Teaching Python. This is episode 17, Abstraction and Analytical Thinking in Python, recorded on Wednesday, March 27th, 2019. My name is Sean Tiber. I'm a coder who recently began teaching. And my name is Kelly Schuster-Paredes, and I'm a teacher who recently began to code. Well, so welcome, Kelly. We're back to our normal Wednesday recording day. I know that we've had a lot going on over the past few weeks, and the next few weeks promise to be even busier. Wanted to just check in with you and see how things are going in your classroom, if you've had any big wins or big moments over the last week. Yeah, we've had a really busy time trying to finish up the quarter and trying to get in as much of Python and extra things uh, as possible. Uh, had a couple of wins. I did the last two units, uh, breadboarding and soldering. I really liked that unit, just getting the kids to see the difference between the prototyping board and making a, a circuit. And the kids really like soldering. I don't, I'm not really sure why. I think you like soldering as well, right? Helps me enter into a Zen state. <laughs> I think that's what happens to them because after we were reflecting on it, the process, they said the best thing about the, about this week was the soldering. So, which, yeah, it's good. It's, so. Well, it's very satisfying. You're melting metal. You're making <laughs> things stick together that normally wouldn't. And I just find it very relaxing if I have a lot of it to do and I've got everything laid out. There's a process to it. It just makes makes me feel relaxed and happy when I'm done. Yeah, and it was nice to see that they had the they made a lot of connections from what they could do with their prototypes and a couple of the projects that they're working on with the lights and the speakers and how they can make that finalized product. Yeah, it's interesting. You moved that to the end of the course now. In my courses, I do it at the beginning, and then they don't really touch it again, whereas now you're doing it at the end of the quarter, and that seems to be more timely with the projects that they're working on. Yeah, I like that a lot. Uh, when we were prototyping, the kids made a couple of things like traffic lights, a racetrack a light, uh, and a sound, a little bit of a sound. They use the speakers from the Pi Maroni. And just for them to be able to understand the difference from the LED, the long leg, the short leg, and having that actually stick afterwards was kind of nice. So I think I'm going to keep it again at the end of the unit. And then we also touched on a little bit of AI this week. So that was fun. Nice. We, we were seeing a lot of uh, talking about ethics and bias and AI. 
Nice. And how about you? You had a lot of fun things with your 20%. <laughs> you had everything going on. <laughs> I've had such a wide range of projects this week, everything from a commercial for other middle school students to learn Python, an infomercial that tells them all the great things that happen in Python, to new quizzes on the Kahoot platform, to new code and new games and everything. So interaction fiction, interactive fiction. Uh, I've had some really great things with the optical sensor on the circuit playground. The one that I am most impressed with is the pair of sixth grade students, sixth grade girls, who set up a Django server from zero to web page. I don't know that they're going to get into actually writing Django apps or anything like that, but they followed a tutorial from installing Homebrew and Python on their, on their MacBooks all the way up to having a web, web page served on one person's computer that was hosted on the other computer. That's fabulous. I was actually talking to some of your sixth graders and telling them that they need to teach me a couple of those things. I haven't had much time to uh, learn anything new this week and next week either, I guess. Yeah, from now on, I'm going to call them the Django girls. It's pretty amazing. Well, this topic comes in line with our 20% time projects and solving problems. Uh, this idea came from the episode we both listened uh, with Michael Kennedy and Talk Python to me. You, call, you texted me and said, oh my gosh, you need to listen to this episode. It was the beginners and experts and software design. There was one point of the, the recording, the podcast, that I said, that's our next podcast. Michael Kennedy made an interesting point about how do you go about tackling a problem? And he was saying uh, he wished he had a class or he could design a class to help beginner coders attack problems. I was driving and I said, that's it. We, we kind of do that. We have that curriculum here at, at Pinecrest. Um, granted, it's at a lower and smaller scale, but I think that's one of the things that we do really well. And it's that idea of abstraction and analytical thinking. One of the things that we do really well is setting the level of difficulty for the student, you know, age and developmentally appropriate for that problem-solving approach. And what we're really looking to do is help them combine many different skills together to be able to approach and solve problems. Everything from defining the problem and identifying that there is a problem to be solved all the way through to how do you actually deliver a solution for that problem and test to make sure that it works? Let's back up a little bit. I'm going to let you define uh, abstraction for us, Sean, because you've got a better definition than, than my definition. So can you just explain to our listeners what abstraction is? It's, it's interesting to me that we talk about abstraction as a software development thing because it's something that we all use in our daily lives. We live in a very complex world with very complex things working for us all the time. The history of technology has been that the tools that we use becomes more and more complex. So if you think back to ancient civilizations, most of the technology that was being used was very simple. I remember my, my, one of my teachers was telling me one of the big breakthroughs in agriculture was basically a box with seeds in it and, and a hollow pole that you could use to poke into the dirt and you shake the box and the seed drops down and goes into the earth so that it improved the speed at which you can plant seeds, right? But everyone knows how that works. I have a box, I have seeds, I have a hollow tube, the seed falls down the hole when I stick it into the earth, and the seed gets planted, and now I have my seed in the ground and does what I want, right? But could anyone go out and tell me how a cedar works for, for John Deere? One of those things you tow behind a tractor and it disperses seeds everywhere? That would be a hard thing to explain even 40 or 50 years ago in detail and understand how it works in full, now add on to the, all of the automation and sensors and all of the computational 
approach that we've added to agriculture, and now it's something where only someone who's a John Deere engineer could probably explain how the cedar actually works, or maybe a really good farmer or rancher. So we've gone from that very simple, everyone can explain it, to now everything we use is so complex that it's really hard for any one person to describe it in detail. And just when you think you've unpacked all those layers of technology to understand it, then you start to get into things like material science. How do we even have the steel that we use for that tractor? We're talking about levels of complexity that's really hard to fit into our brains. We don't know how everything works in all this detail. But what we do have the ability to do and what humans are remarkable at doing is abstracting concepts. I don't need to know how the cedar works. I just need to know that I hook it up to my tractor, I put it behind there, I know how to operate it, and I put the seed in and seeds get out, maybe I make some adjustments. So I'm able to simplify the operation of that equipment to the level that I need. I make it more of an abstract concept. This is a cedar and now it works. Right? So the idea in coding is that there's so much complexity happening behind the scenes that we frankly don't care about as users or even as programmers and coders and we need ways to abstract that complexity away from the user so that whoever is using our code, whether it's an end user sitting on a web browser a thousand miles away or whether it's the guy sitting next door to me and writing code, that when I make my code, he's able to use that code no matter how complex it is in an abstract way and trust that it's working behind the scenes. And that's kind of like a nice little safety net for, for teachers, especially new to coding teachers, uh, when it comes to teaching. Just this week when I was trying to show the kids again about the neural networks and TensorFlow and not the fact that I was teaching them how to code because we only had a couple of days to go over AI, but I was trying to explain to them that in my mind, I just have to accept that these neural networks work. And I could probably follow along, and I did follow along pretty well with the coding, um, and I can write out some of the lines, but what was happening behind that complex lines or uh, behind those uh, those libraries that we were using, I really don't think I could probably touch on. And I was telling them, you know, it's okay. There are some, some things that you need to know, and you don't really need to know how this works. And I think that is a, is a nice safety for a teacher who's just starting to code and trying to also help the kids understand what's going on. The kids need to be able to understand the general process of what, what's happening, what, it, what they're learning, uh, and we can actually explicitly teach them how to identify those things, but they do not need to know everything. It's that need-to-know basis. Right. What's helpful about this from a teaching perspective is that we need to teach both sides of this abstraction. One is how to use complex elements in an abstract fashion. The other is how to design abstract interfaces for complex problems or solutions. So we found that to be a very key aspect of coding in general, but it's also one of the fundamental principles of Python in particular, that simple is better than complex. The ability to, to do things simply and cleanly and trust the layers of, of detail below you, the layers of complexity below you, to be efficient is a paramount function of all coding languages, but Python is part of the core philosophy. That's the biggest thing as a new coder to get, a, get across. I always go back to that matplotlib because that was my biggest aha moment. You don't need to know how to code those lines. You don't need to know how to uh, put in the data that you've collected. You just kind of run it, put in a couple lines of code, and just let the magic happen. And if I wanted to find out and, and adjust things, I guess I could dig in there deep, but I don't really need to.
all you need to do is look at any sort of matplotlib <laughs> error to see how many dozens, if not hundreds, of functions are being called to render your chart to know that there's a lot of complexity there that you don't have to deal with thanks to the people who have been developing that library for years. So we're just talking, there's actually a process. When I started researching about abstraction, because I didn't really know this terminology, we don't use the word uh, abstraction uh, specifically in education. I guess when you go into coding, you would dig more into that word. Uh, But we do often talk about computational thinking and analytical thinking. And the whole idea that this process of breaking down and understanding complex parts to a problem is something that we constantly teach PK to 12 in the school system. And so uh, when I was listening to the podcast, I was kind of feeling comfortable with the conversation going, wow, we do that. We do that in in PK. We talk about little levels of breaking down the problems and uh, the actual steps of how to do that. So abstraction is something that can be explicitly taught. And it's just going into some simple things like reducing that unnecessary detail. It's just letting the kids, again, know that we don't need to have everything showing that they should be able to identify it. So if you specifically teach that at certain moments and highlight the words that this is part of Python and this is part of computer science, it's part of programming, it's something that they can start to look for. When I teach this in middle school, the place where it most typically comes in is actually when we start to talk about functions and why you would use functions to modularize your code. One of the big reasons is for reusability, but the other is for abstraction. And I explain it to the students as the transaction of buying an ice cream cone. When I buy an ice cream cone, I tell the person that I want to buy it from, I want this size, I want this flavor, I want it in a cone, or I want it in a cup, or whatever it is, as my order, those are the things that they need to know in order to fulfill my order, and then here's the money that it costs for that ice cream cone. I don't really care what they do behind the scenes, like what complexity that is, in order to make the ice cream cone. Maybe they're milking the cows in the back and freezing the milk and separating (laughs) the cream and all of those things behind the scenes. I don't really care. What I really care about is, can you make an ice cream cone for me? Bringing it to a real world example where it's a transaction makes it easier for students to be able to see this. So we designed some of those functions. In fact, that's where we brought in James Charles, the YouTube makeup celebrity, as an example. You can do this. This has worked so far with pretty much anything. We've done this with Bob Ross also, where you can take pretty much any series of instructions and break it down into smaller components and then roll that back up into more abstract concepts. So we go through that exercise and I have the students watch the video and write down things that they think would be functions that that the person on screen is doing. And then we talk about, okay, well, what goes into that function? Why did you choose that level of detail versus being more detailed or less detailed in that case? That's a big skill of computational thinking, that process of decomposition. And that's something that I know in the lower levels they do a lot, that decomposition, that designing, and then that programming aspect. And you can find it in all the simple tools that they use at the lower levels, even within Scratch, just giving them a challenge and having the students figure out how to break that challenge up and and code in Scratch or design that program in Scratch and, and then you can relate that to abstraction. So that leads us into our next topic. Something that I'm more comfortable with is how analytical thinking and that process of analyzing and and anticipating some results 
uh, is something that we use a lot in order to teach abstraction without actually going into it too much. And it's that process of whether we're in computer science or we're, we're writing an essay in English or if we're trying to solve an experiment in science, we need to teach the kids how to do this analytical thinking. And what's it's nice about that is just having them to draw upon these other experiences and what they know and that knowledge and skills in order to solve a problem. Analytical thinking is a critical part of computer science. It's something that we have to manage, especially given how much data we're working with. There's a, a common synthesis or a common correlation between data and analytical thinking. I have to have data in order to be able to do my analysis, but one of the things we want to start with is even how do you gather data? What kind of data is important? How do you make observations? How do you sample things, like what kind of data is important. And we start that in our computer science courses almost with a, t a testing philosophy. So as you're writing your code or as you're creating it, we ask the students whenever they run into difficulty or whenever it's not doing what they expect, we do this concept of what was the outcome you were expecting? And then we ask them, what, was, what did you actually observe? And what's the difference between the two? Why do you think that is happening? That's the fundamentals of analytical thinking. Or what did you expect? What did you observe? And now what are you seeing? You know, it's a scientific approach. It's a analytical approach. And it lets us open up conversations with the students regarding how they gather data, how they're analyzing that data, and how they're mapping or creating hypotheses of what could be happening with their code. Yes, you know, analytical thinkers, they can see the data, they can see multiple perspectives as well, which is really important. They can conceptualize. Today we were doing an activity in science and we were trying to have them apply biomechanics and the study of the body and how that works inside a house and being able to transfer that knowledge of what they're, they're seeing from their body into what they might design in a home is, is a really analytical thought for them that they have to process it. They have to organize, they have to classify the information uh, and then make a decision based on what they have. One of the things that I like a lot about analytical thinking is it's tied directly with information fluency. Uh, it's a significant part. Being able to read what is on the screen or on the paper and take out and organize the information in order to process it, to use it. And I do that a lot in the classroom. Give them something to read, give them something to do, give them a, a, a project to make, and I want them to sort through the information. So if we approach this in a stepwise fashion, so step by step, step zero is having something to analyze. This portion is getting them to observe and pay attention to the details and see what's in front of them. For example, during this measurement today that we were doing with the science classes, we were measuring biomechanical force as people were jumping off of a, a small platform onto the floor and we we're measuring how many Gs they had when they impacted the floor and seeing the difference between the two when they landed straight-legged versus crouched to land softly. And we had data right in front of them that showed the G-forces, but then we also had to make the connection. We asked the question, what other senses can you use beyond the sensor data that we're he seeing here? What other subjective measures can you use to be able to evaluate the force that's happening?
we wanted them to do is make the jump to, I can use my ears because someone who's landing straight legged hits the ground with a lot harder thud than someone who is landing soft. And literally they land softer, there's not as much noise and then make that connection. Why do you think that's happening? What's the, why, is that what you expect? Is that something different? What's the difference between the two? So we start with that step zero, which is what data can you measure? How can you make observations? How can you collect samples and get them to think differently, not just about what they can use to measure and track with sensor data, but also what can they observe with their own sensors and then maybe feed that back into some sort of quantized um, approach to be able to measure it in a, in a discrete fashion. So they heard the sound and they were able to use data that was not just what was being measured, but also what they could observe with their own senses. And after they did all that, they took it a step further and were looking at the attenuation through the body and trying to do it through the sense as well. Not only hearing, they were also talking about what they felt. So it was another way of collecting data. And what was really great about this activity is afterwards they recorded this information not only in um, slow-mo footage, but also in um, written work. And they go back to the class and then they start to talk about their observations again. So that's like step one. So step zero was collecting the data. Step one is deriving meaning from the data. Can we see trends? Can we classify our data? Can we make inferences from what we've seen? Can we look at this to sort, organize, find a way to get to that higher level meaning from the data that we've collected? Then step two is how do we transfer those observations and insights like that higher level meaning into broader concepts that can be applied more generally than just the specific case that we found here. So that's our step three, which is now the synthesis into a broader concept of understanding. And it's cool because they go into a connection of, of looking at the joints and then looking at houses and going into drawing and designing their own possible solutions. So we've kind of laddered up from this primitive base data that we collected with jumping off of a, a platform or balancing on a BOSU ball, one of those balancing things, and the data that we've collected through those observations up to some basic principles about how you can attenuate energy from a moving structure. And now we take that concept and we apply that in a deductive fashion down to the parts of the earthquake-proof houses. So how do you take that concept and use it to design an earthquake-proof house? During that de decomposition phase, they actually go through another level where they, they, they start to converge, and then we go back out again and we do a, a convergent activi activity. So after this activity, then they come back into the classroom and they're going to make a um, building, a small building with Play-Doh and sticks, and they're going to put it into another form of an earthquake. And again, this isn't going to be their final product. This isn't what they're going to present, but they're just trying to get in more um, ways to analyze the data that they've already collected. And so when we pair that together, when we take that analytical thinking approach and the abstraction approach that we talked about earlier, when we pair those together, that's where we get computational thinking. There's an additional step to this that I would also include, which is the iterative nature of computational thinking, that it's almost like an engineering design process where you're constantly collecting data, using that to implement something, testing it, getting more data, and using that to refine your approach. So computational thinking can be very iterative as well as we go through this, especially when you're looking for patterns. If I look for a pattern, have I found the right pattern? Are there other patterns that could work here? If I apply this pattern, does it work in all the cases that I have? In the cases where it doesn't work, 
can I broaden my pattern or broaden my definition or my model in order to account for that, that new use case also. So this gives us the ability to tap into many other computational thinking skills that are maybe more atomic, right? They're smaller pieces or smaller parts of computational thinking overall, but generally fit into these two big buckets of abstraction and analytical thinking. When I was um, listening to the podcast um, with Talk Python to me, it was that whole conversation of breaking problems into smaller bits. We actually just broke the problem of abstraction into a smaller bits using computational thinking. And it's every project. I think any project that we come across, whether it's teaching a curriculum, um, whether it's driving a car, whatever we come across, building a new um, product that our boss gives us, <laughs> it's always about breaking it down. Either whether we're breaking it down the actual concept or if we're breaking it down into how we're going to teach it. So it's that process of going through this computational thinking um, each and every time. There are so many benefits to this. There's, this is such a fundamental skill that everyone should learn. It shouldn't be the only skill that we employ. There's many other types of thinking and other approaches, but it should be something that everyone should have available to them as a way to solve problems, as a way to make things happen, as a way to get things done. So when we look at this process, it's something that we've introduced explicitly over the last four or five years at our school. It's something that we're teaching at all different grade levels, and we have to find ways to teach it at the appropriate level for the students to be able to build upon it and grow and develop that skill over time. So the goal is that by the time, you know, say a kindergartner entering now or a pre-K student coming in, someone who's in the earliest stages of their education, graduate from our school in 12 or 13 years, that they've got this very finely honed skill for being able to abstract things, conduct thorough analysis, to be able to decompose problems, recognize patterns. Uh, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about the specifics of, of how we actually teach some of these abstraction techniques. Um, because it is sort of abstract when you're talking about it on in a podcast. And as I was listening and thinking about the things that we do each and every day, um, it was kind of nice to see. I only do them every other day. Every other day. Oh, okay, every sorry. Other <laughs> Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Tuesday, and Thursdays are my off days. <laughs> One of the things that we both do is this uh, use, modify, create kind of thing. We thrive on the ability to give some students some a book or give them a project or have them look up a specific activity. And this is our, I think, in my, I, I will say it for my classroom, it's one of my one ways that I get through a lot of concepts quickly. Um, it's that approach to teaching where... Um, they're pre-prepared programs. I want them to figure out what's going on, write that entire code, tell me what that program is doing, play around with it. And I want them to go back in there and see where they can modify, see what they can um, change inside that program. Even if it's just changing a color um, or changing a prompt, I want them to go back in there and modify it. And then from that, I like to have what I call a mashup. I give them another project and I ask them to mash those two projects to together to create something new. And so that use, modify, create is, is one of the ways that I like to use to in order to teach abstraction. It gives the students quite a few different uh, opportunities to apply some of these skills. If you're just using someone else's code, you don't need to know how it works necessarily. You're able to be just a user of that code in a very abstract way. It just does what I need it to do. I don't really care how it does it. 
just let it go. You may not learn much about what's happening behind the scenes. You just know that it does what you need it to do. Right? And I think that was one of the things that was on the podcast as well was the ability to know when you can just let something run without having to know it in detail. That's a skill to be able to make that decision. When they have to mash two things together or they have to modify someone else's code to do what they want, they found this thing that was close to what I want, but I need to make it do this other thing instead. That requires a different level of understanding and getting a level deeper. So you're going beyond that first layer of abstraction into the next one. And you're able to then apply it to this new use case. You may not understand how everything works, but you're able to tinker with it and modify it enough to make it do what you want. And then that third layer is where you create something new. There's nothing else out there that does what I want, so I'm going to create it myself, and I need to know it from the bottom all the way to the top. Like every piece of code that goes into it, every library that I call, I don't necessarily need to know all those details, but I might be working in a much less abstract way, in a very complex, detailed way, and then I'm also designing the interface for my consumers or my users of the, the project that I'm making. Yeah, and then another one that we like to do a lot is the problem design code. Um, I like doing this one, especially in the early days. I will teach them maybe a specific line or a couple lines of code, and then I'll give them a problem. One of the problems I gave them um, was to convert 24-hour time into 12-hour time, and they had seen a couple of, of the ways to do something similar, and they had to design that problem and code it. It's just the idea of giving them a specific problem. You even said it to me at the very beginning when I, when I needed to start coding. Here's a problem, get a problem, and try to find how you're going to solve that. And I think that works really well with helping them with abstraction. For the first introduction, this is a really great way. If you give them the problem, then they go out and solve it, but they're not necessarily as invested into that problem because it was given to them. By the end of the course, what we're seeking is for them to go find their own problem to solve and that's when we start to get things like sixth graders setting up a Django server or uh, eighth graders writing 600 lines of interactive fiction code because now that's the problem that they want to solve and is a deep dive into that area. Exactly. Another activity that I like to do, um, or and I know you do this as well, are the annotations or the adding the notes and comments. Um, so annotations, this is one of the activities that I really like, and this is one that you showed me, Kelly, that has worked really well. And the idea behind this is that you give students either a snippet of code or a full program, nothing too huge, and something they may have seen before, but they are expected to write comments to describe what the code is doing at any stage. This is the literacy side of it, being code literate to be able to read code and understand what it's doing. So how did you come up with this idea? Because I think it's a really great way of getting students to read and understand what's happening. It started with, uh, Python is another language for me. So whenever I was starting to learn Spanish, um, it was just like learning vocabulary. And always, um, that's the way my brain worked, was I would see a Spanish sentence and I would translate it. And almost like, these are the need to know sentences I needed to survive when I was living in Peru. So I translated them and I had a little book. And then when we started learning Python, I showed you my, my cheat sheet book and all the comments that I made in there. That idea of using the comments and translating, literally translating every sentence into um, something that you personally understand, not necessarily exact Pythonic um, vocabulary, but something that you understand is just a good way to help your brain break down 
that function or that um, command line. And I think as we get further into more Python, the, the lines get longer. So you have to be able to say what it's really showing. Right. And it works great. I've seen a lot of our students really progress from doing that when they have to think about what it's doing and describe it. And this works well as a partner activity too because they can discuss it. Well, I think it means this. I mean, it means that. It's not necessarily like a quiz. It's more along the lines of an assessment of knowledge. Do you understand what this is doing? And if you don't understand it, then we come back and regroup with it together to talk about it. And kids are shouting out answers. They get really into it uh, when they know the answer. And it's kind of like that metacognitive um, side comes into it. So they have their cheat sheets as well where they write down the vocabulary. The question I always ask them when they say, do I need to write this down? And I say, do you know what that is? And I always answer that with a question. So yeah, so the analytical thinking, understanding um, what's going on and using the comments and notes sections and annotations. Um, another thing that we do we do this breaking down the problem. And this is something that they talked about in Talk Python to me. And it was that idea of the cognitive skills, writing out exactly what you need to do in order to solve the problem. And I've seen you do that a lot when you do your 20% time. You have the kids come up and you sketch out the, the problem on the whiteboard and you do a flow chart, but you make them go and talk to you and speak out what it is that they really want to achieve. There's two ways you can approach this. So you may be tempted to think through it in a linear fashion. They start at the beginning and I go to the end. This is a great opportunity to use some recursive thinking. So the idea of writing it from beginning to end, but maybe those beginning to end is just five steps. You start with one thing that I want to do, like I want to wash my car, but the five steps might be get the car wet, soap it down, scrub it, rinse it, dry it, right? Those are the five steps but then you can break down each of those steps further into its components. Like if I'm going to wet the car down, the, I'm gonna wet the front of the car down, right? And then I'm going to do that part of it, wet the side of the car. So you have the opportunity to kind of unpack each of those boxes of, of activities and that way of thinking through it recursively and getting down to the base parts helps them you know, literally break down the problem into its smaller components until they get to a level of detail that they're comfortable with, that that's something that can be reapplied or that they don't need to go any further. One of the next things that um, is going to be a great way of teaching abstraction, which I have not used and I really want to try next quarter, because it, it goes in line with this whole idea of information literacy and being able to take information out of what you have read. And um, it's from a website called Teaching London Computing. And there are a bunch of articles about abstraction or about the idea of abstraction. And I like how they, they have these articles laid out. One of the articles that they have is a simple two-page PDF that says, how do computers become so clever? And it walks through the process of designing um, a tic-tac-toe game. And the idea of what would you program that computer to do in order to play tic-tac-toe. And I think that's a really interesting way of talking about abstraction that I have not done and I, I kind of want to try it. it. It does kind of combine these two areas together where you're looking at the, the information literacy and thinking about the process of abstraction and finding examples out there in the world. So I, I want to try that too. I haven't had an opportunity yet. Um, the next one that we have on our list is to take a specific program 
right? So give them the source code and have them run it and see what is happening. Tell us what is happening. So they look at the code, they run it, they have to describe what's happening based on what they're seeing in the code and in you know, the microbit or in the REPL to see what's being output. That's one that is similar to, to the use, modify, create, but it's just that one step. And these are good things for those five minute challenges that I like to do, um, those little quick little activities. The one that I, I like the most, and it's always the one I do within the first two weeks of class, is um, I'll give them a nested loop, and then I will have it flash an image on the micro bit within the nested loop. And it helps them to figure out how many times that loop will pass through. And I don't tell them anything. I just ask them, why is that X showing? How many times is it showing? And then they have to deduce why that's happening. And then from there, we have the discussion about what's a nested loop and what's happening within that process. So I feel like maybe that's one of the biggest ones where I talk about the abstraction is they need to know what's going on inside of that loop and be able to explain it. Turtle works really well for this too. So I use Turtle with this process and we go into how does turtle draw shapes and how do you make functions that can draw shapes and how do we turn that into more generalized abstract functions that can be used to draw more shapes than just a square. So we go through a progression when we do that, um, but I often start by giving them some code and saying, okay, what does this do? So how algorithms shape our world, that's another one on the list. I. Um saw a couple of articles and it was kind of at the start of the AI, I wanted the kids to have a discussion about um, do they really have a choice in the choices that they make online? And we started, and I found this article about how algorithms shape our, our world. And as I was thinking about our podcast this week, I thought, well, that's a pretty good um, abstraction example right there is we the kids don't really need to know what's happening behind the algorithms they just need to understand that when they go onto netflix when they go onto youtube when they go anywhere that has um, some data being collected on them ads or other suggestions of videos to watch to pop up and i don't really expect them to understand the whole process that's going on but i want them to realize that it does affect them and it affects their choices online the last example that I have on our list is um, pattern detection and matching. Again, for me, I think of it in terms of a foreign language. Um, If I can show the kids or the students how um, multiple functions are used in different situations, and then I also tell them to make sure you save all your code or name it properly. Imagine that, naming files properly, but name their code properly, then they'll be able to find a specific program that they've used in the past and realize that that can be used in another um, scenario that I may give them. I I like that a lot. We do that um, with user inputs and functions when I teach those two topics. And it's just a, it's a nice way to let them know that patterns exist and that if you use and you are able to understand the patterns that happen with encoding, it comes a little bit easier. I had a moment this quarter where I realized that the kids were getting a little too good at recognizing patterns. So I had asked them to create functions for me and they were writing their functions as though they were being used by a human sitting at the terminal rather than a function that could be used in another program. And so they had picked up on this pattern of asking the user for input, doing some processing on that information and then providing the user with output again. They had fallen into this pattern recognition trap where they thought that that was the solution to all of the Python problems that we had to solve. So I would use it as an opportunity to explain to them this idea of 
recognizing patterns and maybe pattern overuse, or you fall into the dangerous trap of you know, using the same pattern to solve every problem, even when it's not appropriate. That's a great skill. Well, ex uh, those are some of the examples that I've thought of when we were talking about this topic. Um, it's obviously, I, if we take it and deep dive in more into what we do within our curriculum, we could probably find a lot more um, connections. Um, do you have anything else on that? On Sean, do you have anything you can think of to put you on the spot <laughs> on a Wednesday afternoon? Um, you know, honestly, the, the biggest thing with this is to recognize that this is a foundational skill development exercise that you can't expect students to come in knowing these things. There's a lot of work that goes into uh, adopting these approaches on their part. They have to work at it. They have to think about it. It's not always something that comes naturally for students. So, you know, apply large doses of patience, lots of reinforcement, provide opportunities for feedback where you can, but give them the chance to learn this. This is something that many adults don't really understand well either and aren't capable of thinking this way out of the box immediately. So you know, be patient with them. And if this is new to you also, just try to practice and role model the behaviors. I find myself always seeking ways to try to demonstrate this behavior to my students in a way that they can, that's accessible to them and that they can get. I'm always looking for new ways to teach things. Yeah. We have a listener email today. Jason Kibbe, um, a teacher in Pennsylvania, sent us a, just a, a great list of questions uh, across a wide range of topics. So we're going to be dipping into his, his email probably over the next few episodes. But one that really jumped out to me was a question about cheating. Jason asks, is cheating a concern? Has it happened? It's one thing to consult Stack Overflow and another to copy and paste a classmate's code. And I agree, this is definitely something that's been a concern for us. How do we identify what is cheating and what isn't? One of the things we just talked about is the ability to reapply code and concepts from other places to understand how it works. The way that we've navigated this in our classroom has been that it's all about attribution. We structure our class in such a way that there are very few tests and quizzes where it's closed book, closed notes, closed internet, where you can't search for answers. We try to make it so that students have to can consult as many resources as possible to be able to answer the question. But we define cheating as when a student represents someone else's code, someone else's content as their own without proper attribution. And there are some times where we tell them you can't work with an, a partner um, when we're doing a challenge in class or we're working on a project or something, we will tell them you have to you know, work independently or work with the partner that you've been assigned or chosen. So this gives the students the opportunity to have a resource. They can still go do all their own research, but we make it very clear to them, if you're going to present this code, you need to be able to source it. I got it from this place or I brought it in from here if they present it as their own code, that this is something that they wrote from scratch and it's clearly from another student or a book or something like that, then that's where we consider it cheating and we'll refer them for, uh, for disciplinary action. Yeah, and I always like to use the terminology for what it is. I, I like to use open source and remind the kids and that there is a lot of information that's open source. There's the GitHub, there are communities, the Python community is all about sharing. And I think that's one of the great things that I like to tell them. I showed them a couple of the 
the open source programs, for example, the QuickDraw and Google, when they uh, with the AI and the machine learning, has everything open source, and how projects have been modified and recreated from this code. I like to encourage that they use open source, but again, you cannot sit there and try to tell <laughs> us that you've coded this program when you can clearly tell that's not their style. Right. It's it's something I say that is not the style that you you know how to code. Um, I can I can understand that that's probably um, another student's style of coding because I've seen his his work before, and I think setting that stage and letting them know that it is an open source community when the code is provided, um, but you have to give them credit. You yeah. have to let people know that this was not your work. You may have modified it, added it, add what is it in when you do a replit when you a fork it. Yep. Um, and that's okay, but you need to give credit where credit is due. Right. The nice thing about being in a, a middle school academic environment is that we haven't yet run into many issues with licensing requirements or anything like that. So we don't necessarily touch on open source licenses and the varieties of different licenses that are out there for using source code because for the most part, our students aren't trying to sell their work or can profit from it commercially. They're here purely for the learning and the education of it. So for the most part, open source licenses haven't been a concern yet. Mm -hmm. um, we focus more on the proper attribution and giving credit where it's due. And you know, to me, the bigger issue is when a student attempts to pass off someone else's work as their own. That's when we have concerns about honor code violations and things like that that we will um, refer for discipline. But I guess the best way to avoid having the cheating happen is to either A, let them do a partner up, um, B, give them a challenge that has various outcomes, or C, force them to use someone else's code and have them change it. Yep. So you know what the starting point is. Yes. Right? So that would be my solution for this. The reason why I've seen students attempt to cheat or stretch it is because of anxiety. It's a fear of not being able to do it and some sort of pressure that they're feeling to perform. And so what we try to do is remove as much of that pressure to perform as possible and refocus it into this idea of self-imposed desire to succeed, to want to get it right. Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you, Jason. Yeah, thanks. So I think that does it for this week. We've had some great questions. We've had a lot of really interesting discussion about computational thinking. What does that really mean? Why do we focus on it? How do we solve problems? Um, as always, it's a pleasure to talk with you, Kelly. I know we spend a lot of time together every day uh, in our jobs, but it is always something I look forward to, to sitting down and recording a podcast session with you because it just is refreshing and invigorating to talk about these topics in depth and in detail and learn some new things from each other. And in Spanish, you just say igualmente. <laughs> <laughs> I know I, I equally agree. It's amazing that we can still, we were going to have a short podcast and look at us, we're still talking. <laughs> All right. Well, as usual. This is Sean. This is Kelly. Signing off. <laughs>